more to come. PW Comics World podcast about graphic novels and comics publishing news. I am Heidi McDonald, editor-in-chief of The Beat, live at SPX, the Small Press Expo in Bethesda. Sitting here with Hannah Templar. Hi, Hannah. Hi. Hi. How are you? I'm doing good. Um, it's been a good con. Really busy. Yeah. yeah. So, you, so you were saying that you've been here before? Yes. Um, the last time I was here was 2017, and then I visited as an attendee before. Right. Oh, yeah. So yeah. when you came as an attendee, were you inspired? Like, i got to be on the other side of the table sometime. Oh, yeah. Absolutely. Yeah, this is one of the best... Uh, festivals to come to for small trips, obviously. So. Right. Yeah. There's so much talk about community here, too, right? Mm-hmm. Do you feel part of a community expo? Oh, definitely. Um, I, coming out of, uh, I was a full-time graphic designer, and coming out of that into a brand new industry, making an interesting transition was super easy, because I was able to make friends really easily in this community, and just really supportive, and uh, people are really great about talking up each other's books and helping each other out with critique and reviews. It's a really great community. Yeah, yeah. Well, let's talk a little bit. Like, your book with Top Shelf is Cosmonite, yes. correct? Um, so is this your first book, or let's talk a little bit about what you've been doing. Yeah, this is my first um, published solo book. I've done uh, a lot of work-for-hire work with IDW, um, drawing the Glow series. Oh, right. Wow. Hey, wrestlers. Yes, which has been wonderful. Um, and I've done, you know, a lot of covers and the past stuff, but this is my first solo debut full-length graphic novel, so. Yeah. That's my first that. So tell us about what Cosmonites is about. Sure. Um, well, the tagline is, um, for this ragtag band of space gays, liberation from the, uh, patriarchy means beating patriarchy at its own game. So it's about a group of women that comes together in neo-medieval futuristic space, um, and they are basically entering these jousting tournaments uh, where people put on mech suits and rocket packs and beat each other up for the hand of a princess, and these women start winning princesses themselves and liberating them. Oh, wow. Um, So it's a space opera. It's a space opera. I would say I have not read the book to be complete candid. I was flipping through your last copy of the table because it is sold out, correct? Here. Yeah, uh, it's absolutely gorgeous. Uh, Hannah, your art is just like bursting with energy and life. And, um, you know, it's comics. I, I don't know how to put it any better. Um, so yeah, so it seems like, so you're saying you were a graphic designer before? Yeah. I mean, like you, you, like the book is very accomplished. So how did you, you know, like you were just, born to it. <laughs> well, I, um, yeah, I was a graphic designer for a long time as kind of a day job and then public self-publishing zines on the side and doing smaller festivals. And more recently, I made the leap um, into doing comics full-time just because I know it's what I want to do. And so Cosmonites was kind of my big project that I wanted to really push and put kind of my whole self into. So it's my first all-in, 100%. I'm doing this, doing all the colors, all the letters, all the, everything. Um, and, yeah, I think it really paid off. Like, it, it's something I'm really proud of and excited to have people read. Yeah. Well, so. um, did you, like, how long did it take you to do? Um, I wrote Cosmonites. It's, I wrote it, actually, at the end of 2016. Um, but working on the art uh, has taken about a year and a half. So yeah, it takes, was takes a lot. Actually, did you, what did you learn about making comics in that time? Oh, my gosh so much. And the biggest thing I learned is just to not underestimate the timeline, honestly. It always takes a lot longer 
Um, and the running joke while I was working on this book was graphic novels have so many pages. Like, <laughs> you're done with one, there's still 150 left. And it's it's uh, the biggest thing is stamina with a right. like this. It's right. keeping up uh, with every stage of the process, um, being excited about it the whole way through. And it does help when it's, you know, you've written the thing yourself and it's your baby and it's very personal, yeah. like the story is to me, so that definitely helps. That's great that you got it land in that top shelf. Yes. Uh, I mean, not to be too much plant favorites, but, you know, at, at uh, PW Comics World, uh, we and the beat, we love top shelf. Yeah. Uh, Chris and we are very supportive mm-hmm. publishers. They're wonderful. Yeah. yeah, I love their philosophy. Uh, they've been really supportive and my vision for the book and uh, gave me a lot of creative freedom, which has been great. Um, just because, again, it is my baby, and you know, I'm doing everything for it. So to be able to really fulfill the vision I had for it and be supported by a publisher is a dream. How did you get hooked up with them? Was it through Glow or? Um, no, actually, I was posting the I posted the prologue of the comic online as a web comic, and basically told people, you know, I'm going to be updating this every week for the next few years. And Lee found it online through Twitter and contacted me, and that's how we got touch. Oh. Well, you know, they are very good talent scouts. So they are, uh, you know, very smart about that. Uh, what was it like when Glow, though? I know that comic has, uh, you know, uh, the TV show has, like, such a huge cult following. And, you know, I know the comic cut, cut some of that yeah. kind of rubbed off. Yeah. Um, well, it's been a dream as well. That's Glow is one of my favorite uh, TV shows. It's one of my favorite shows. So when I was contacted with Draw I was super, super excited. Um, and that has been great, too. It's kind of a great break from working on Cosmonites because I'm just doing the artwork for that, but not right. the colors. So um, it's a great exercise in cartooning and in likenesses. I've gotten a lot better at drawing doing that as well. And I've been able to interact with you know members of the cast. Mm-hmm. That's been really exciting as well. Right. So, yeah. That yeah. was, you know, a book with benefits. Yes. Yeah. It's yeah. very cool. Yeah. yeah. Um, how did you get that gig? Glow. I got that because I worked on Gem and the Holograms with IDW last year. I worked on a short with them. Oh. So the 80s connection and the aesthetic connection seemed to make sense. Right, right. Well, I mean, you, you, you seem to have come quite a ways. So, I mean, were you a wrestling fan before? <laughs> I, I, truthfully, I was not. I am now. I've learned a lot about wrestling in the past year. Um, so now, now I don't fan. And catching up with the original show was also really fun. Um, yeah, 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 which is gorgeous. A place you don't know, just in case some of your listeners are not aware, says we're gorgeous ladies of wrestling. And, um, you know, as a, an old-timer who was around for Glow the first time, and also a long-time wrestling fan, um, you know, the 80s attitude towards women in wrestling was very different than what we might expect now with the man, Becky Lynch, and so on. And um, But yet, I mean, and the, but the show has repurposed that. It's such yeah. a... Uh, great way. And I actually, to me, like, I love that it goes back and shows like, oh, you know, the pioneers went back a lot further and they, you know, like it's not, we didn't just invent this today. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. It's one of my favorite shows. And I do love that it, it's about wrestling, but it's really, it's about, you know, female friendship. Yeah. You know, ensemble. That stuff's really great. Yeah. yeah. So, you know, I, there's been a lot of talk here at SPX and just about, you know, queer narratives, queer creators and, I really, uh, at the Ignatz Awards last night when, when, um, um, Rosemary Valerio Ocano, who won three awards, uh, was up and said, who here is queer? Like the whole room erupted. Yes. <laughs> and 
So, uh, I mean, how how do you think that developed? I mean, you've been here coming here a few years. I mean, you know, how do you think that? Why do you think that happened? What well, is about comics? Yeah, it's interesting. Um, I think comics as an industry attracts a lot of queer people just because it is sort of an outsider career to kind of take on. It's very self-motivated, a lot of self-publishing and zines, and zines historically have also been uh, very, you know, people mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so I think, obviously, it makes sense for a lot of people who don't uh, sit in and want to follow, like, a rigid career path, and it's a way of self-expression and controlling them. Uh, and then, you know, over time, obviously, as, as being queer, being outwardly queer, Accepted, I think it's also a louder presence. Right. Festivals. Even right. if the queer people were here all along, it's become um, yeah. really important to yeah. be visible in that way as well. So, yeah, I mean, it's really amazing. I will say, as someone who's been coming here for quite a long time, that definitely was an undercurrent that went right from the start. And as you say, I mean, now it's nice to become so much more accepted and, you know, people discovered more about it so uh, it's it really has blossomed here it's just fascinating though to see how the two cultures intersect here yeah definitely yeah and I think comics are really driving the queer narrative a little bit now it's really like a very powerful expression of the the queer culture yeah absolutely Um, for me it's it's a tool for telling stories um, kind of holistically in a way that I can do every part of the story as well, and that's really exciting to me. I love working collaboratively as well, but um, to be able to, you know, make an entire story that is visual and is really exciting and for me is also really powerful. Right. So, um, uh, where do you where do you live, Hannah? Actually, right now I live in Reston, Virginia, which is okay. All right. So you're you're local. Um, yeah. Do you have like a community of cartoonists or you know studio or you know? I don't at the moment. Um, I was in Seattle earlier. Um, earlier this year, I actually just and I did in Seattle. Um, a lot of my community actually ends up being online because I work from home, so it feels like my office is Twitter a lot of the time or like a Discord channel with other cartoonists. It's kind of the workplace, right? Uh, online, but I hope I can meet some local people too. Right, so, right. Yeah, that is uh, it is. Um, like the virtual commute and all that. Um, but, uh, I mean, it does, uh, yeah, you need to get out of the house. Yeah. I find as a writer, I definitely do. Yeah. Yeah. Sometimes you can hear on our podcast with me and Calvin and Kate are together. Sometimes that'll be the first time in the week that I've actually sat with other people to talk. (laughs) And so sometimes it might come across like little gangbusters there. So, um, um, yeah. So what's next? you? Um, I will be working on Cosmonite's book two. That's a big one. Um, it's a trilogy. It's there to work this coming. And I'm really excited for that. And then I am working on an unannounced graphic novel right now that I can't say too much about, but I'm really excited about it. It's queer uh, historical nonfiction, which is different from other work I've done in the past. So yeah, so. yeah, yeah. So you're very, so this career change has been very beneficial for you. It has. <laughs> yeah, it, was a, it was a big risk, but so far things are going well and I'm really excited. Yeah, yeah. well that's fantastic. Well, Hannah, thanks for taking a little bit of time. Um, just your debut here on More to Come, but as we always say, there will obviously be a lot more to come with Hannah Temple. Thank you. <laughs> 
Welcome to More to Come, PW Comic World's weekly podcast on comics and graphic novel publishing. I'm Calvin Reed, Senior News Editor of Publishers Weekly, co-editor of PW Comics World, and editor of The Fanatic, PW's new comics and pop culture newsletter. Check us out at publishersweekly.com slash comics. All right, um, we're a change of pace. We're in Bethesda, Maryland at the Small Press Expo. That's SBX uh, to you who are in the know. SBX 2019, uh, one of really the probably the most important comics arts festivals uh, on the East Coast. And I say, I call it a camp to distinguish it from the Comic-Con experience, which is a gigantic media experience. This is a publishing event. And on that light, I'm here with a terrific artist, uh, old friend, um, uh, polemicist, uh, <laughs> critic, writer, James Romberger, uh, the uh, the artist and, I guess, co-writer of Seven Miles a Second, the acclaimed graphic uh, memoir of David Wanarovich. Hey, James, welcome back to More to Come. Oh, thanks, Calvin. And this is always like a super amount of deja vu every time I run into you. I know, man. We go back too far. You know, we, when we get together, it's this whole home week, you know? Yeah, we were at one of these, like, I don't know, not that long ago, we did this exact same thing. I know. Well, you've been on the show before. I appreciate it, you know. But you got a new book out now. I mean, well, it's a new periodical, but it also, uh, it also investigates your relationship with one of the great masters of this medium that we love, Jack Kirby. Uh, many people out there have have heard about the phrase, uh, you know, comics will break your heart. You've done essays about it. He told this to you. You where this thing started. Uh, and you've done a work here that's kind of based on uh, some of the stories about Kirby during World War II. Is that correct? Okay, well, so, yeah, what I did... Or correct it, all the mistakes uh, I just said. <laughs> funny, because the last time I talked to you, I told you the story that I was yes, going to do. And now, and then and now yeah. in the interim, I actually accomplished it. Yeah. So, And it's one of the first comics I've written myself, because yeah. I kind of took control of the writing, as opposed to, to yeah. being just an artist interpreting. Uh, what, what I did was kind of... I did a sort of a extrapolation of things that were known about his career but not really on the record so much so there's like we knew that Jack had had a battle with cancer at the end of his mm -hmm. life yes and uh, so I I drew something I knew that he would have had to do is go through a CAT scan and mm -hmm. I've done them myself so I've been through that process so I was able to do that pretty realistically and believably and then apply what I know about Jack's personality to how he would have gone through such an experience I mean I can't say ever for real like knowing how somebody yeah. would act but I, I approximated it and then also incorporated it with a, a World War II experience of his which was described kind of briefly but then I really extrapolated that as well but basically when you go through a CAS scan you're in a, a very thin you know small kind of a tunnelish aspect to it mm -hmm. so yes. while he's in there he remembers back to an incident when he him and his uh, one of his pals went through the crossing of the Moselle River and their whole platoon was wiped out and only these two guys survived and then was this during D-Day? No, it was no. well after, but uh, mm -hmm. but they're traveling through France in this freezing ass cold weather, yeah. and they get to a uh, brick factory, and they get in there, and the brick and the ovens that they bake the bricks in is, are still warm. So they go into the ovens to stay warm, and then as they're in there, a troop of Nazis comes into the factory and decide that they're going to get warm. So Jack and his pal are in the ovens, closed in. And they spend the time in petrified fear that these Nazis are going to turn the ovens on, which obviously wrecked 
you know, uh, resonates somewhat with the Jewish experience well, in World War II yes. as regarding ovens. So I don't want to talk about it much yeah. more than that. But then, so I, I drew this as a kind of a, uh, as a, as a, as a narrative crossing back forth in time. And then I wrote an essay that kind of contextualizes it, which I felt was kind of necessary to clarify the things. And with Jack's own experience of, and how the, uh, the traumas that he experienced growing up in the Lower East Side as a street fighting kid and then having to go to the, to the European theater and battle Nazis. Yeah. Hand to hand, so it's a really it traumatized him and, and greatly affected his it's, work it's and really, informed his work. Yeah, yeah. Okay. And it's, so it's really actually a combination of facts you've known about his life and combining it with some fictional elements to right. really kind of uh, make us take a little closer look at Jack Kirby. I mean, I think Kirby generally of his life. he sort of underestimated. I mean, there's a sort of a tendency because he. He produced so much, like, oh, Jack could draw five pages a day. And he sort of looked at it as a drawing machine. And so one of my takes on that is, like, it's sort of like this whole thing of people go, ooh, you have this artistic gift. It's like, oh, so what did you do? You found that under the Christmas tree? No. It's like Jack had to work his ass off work, to yeah. teach himself how to draw. He didn't really go to art school or anything. He just picked up as a kid and and figured out yeah. how to do it and and he could draw rings around a lot of people. Yeah. But that's from hard work. So none of it came easy. And I also wrote his own material, even though he was partnered with people who were kind of credited with the writing. It was always Jack coming up with his own ideas. And, and along these lines, in me dealing with this as a story, I kind of, I really purposely didn't draw in any way in his style or try to, you know, kind of copy his writing style in any way. I, I, That's interesting I, because, you know, in the past, your drawing sometimes pays homage to Jack. You've done things well, in this that, case, I know, really... Very, little stylistic things sometimes. I kind of avoided kind of mm -hmm. the muscularity of like, uh, oh, cool, here's like... I mean, here's like yeah. these guys in war, but I tried to avoid that kind of like cool, oh, here's guys in cool poses with guns or, yeah. or like the super action scene of like that you might expect because... I didn't want to glamorize the violence in any way, yeah. and I kind of also didn't want to have this kind of big payoff, like, here's the big action payoff, yeah. because that's not what it's about. It's about him going through trauma, and it's about him dealing with that trauma. And uh, and then even yeah. connecting it to his 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 uh, his real life uh, and the cancer that... Uh, well, that's had. true. So, okay, so the first time I saw him, he was quite... Uh, he was in his 50s or, you know, getting towards early 60s, but he was still very vital. Mm -hmm. And so when he said to me, like, oh, I showed him this piece, you know, this piece, you know, just quickly, some kid showing him a thing. But he's like, oh, that's great, kid. He goes, you know, but you know, don't do comics. They'll break your heart. You know, be a fine artist yeah. instead. And, and and I ended up actually doing that. Well, well you kind of do both. The second time Not I met him, fine you know, too. <laughs> I met him again, and I was with Marguerite, like, maybe early 90s. Mm -hmm. And the change in him was like really kind of shocking he shrunk it a lot his yeah. voice is really hoarse and that was because he was going through a treatment with cancer well now and I mentioned what the doctor that treated him said which I did find on the record and he said Jack was like the bravest and toughest man he'd ever met because yeah. he went through the treatment and it, it, it you know beat the hell out of him like it does with everybody but yeah. Jack cancer didn't kill Jack Jack died later of heart failure yeah. you know so he like he dealt with everything like as a fighter and he, he, he dealt as he could with it so he just was somebody that dealt with life yeah. and grabbed, so let me jump is because yeah.
certainly uh, in some ways the cover of the book is the kind of homage I think to Marvel to, uh, during the Kirby years uh, yeah, the title line goes Kirby says ask oh, you not know, the price yeah Tom real, is the, Tom K the, uh, the mean, publisher of Uncivilized yeah, Tom, book goes, oh, right. you have to put you this. have to mention Kirby on the cover so what I did was there was an issue of Jimmy Olsen that Jack had done it had you know Don Rickles on the covers, yeah. like Kirby. Jimmy also meets Don Rickles, which is crazy. <laughs> and at the top, Kirby said, not? "Don't ask, just buy it." Yeah, know? right. <laughs> so I took that line and I said, "Kirby says, ask not the price," which is actually kind of a Stan Leeism. Yeah, which is exactly then they, what it is. You know, where the price is, says it's only six dollars. <laughs> see, yeah. which is how Jack would talk. You know? so, so, so yeah, it looks kind of like a you know, but yeah, because yeah. they. Tom thought I needed to have and, and, and Kirby's the, name on the cover. I was kind of like, oh, I don't want to market yeah. it as a Kirby comic. I want to market it as like, yeah. oh, it's about trauma and and graphic medicine. He's like, who the who the hell's going to want to buy? Well, look, this is it, this brings together really so oh, oh, many also, the thing is, is elements. It's sure. it's for real number one, and that's not because there's going to be another comic that continues yeah. the adventures of Kirby. It isn't. No, this is now going to be an anthology title that I'm the editor of it, yeah. and I won't be drawing necessarily in the next issues. You know? I, I mean, see. Oh, I really cool. always wanted to be the editor of an anthology comic because people always say, oh, anthology comics don't sell, but I think that's that's not yeah. true. Mad Magazine, EC Comics, Warren Comics, <laughs> well, every goddamn you're, comic ever you're done invoking was Mad Magazine, which has just been, like, shut down. So yeah, after 50 years, I mean, <laughs> well, it did a pretty good 50 years. <laughs> I, well, I, well some people question why it was shut down at all, but there you well, go. Well, actually, it, it crapped after Kurtzman left. It was all downhill, uh, but never mind. <laughs> that was like a 1958, anyway. Well, I said, don't cry about Mad <laughs> Magazine. You know, if you're gonna, if you want to cry about it, actually make a new magazine that's actually funny. Well, one of the things, uh, one of the things you do, Midon, was I, I think you you uh, were trying to lure him back to the Lower East Side. I know you mentioned that oh, in right, the essay. Yeah, so and that time he really wasn't having we it. We met Jack, and he looked really terrible and everything. And I said, "Oh, we were like, oh, we want to bring you back, and we'll make you know, we'll make you dinner at our house, and then you can walk around and see about the neighborhood." And I watched the blood like drain yes, yes. out Your of Your house his on face. Avenue B, and, and his wife Roz goes. <laughs> Don't, that's the one thing that's, he'd never do. He spent so much time trying yeah. to escape from this place. And that was his whole life, trying to yeah. get away from the poverty and the miserably slum <laughs> shithole that he lived. Yeah. He didn't <laughs> want to be there. You know, he's like, I'm uh, out of here. You know, so that was well, it. You know, well, look, this is pardon great. Pardon my French. Yeah, well, look, I'm going to do a little bit of nostalgia here. Uh, it's always great to talk to you uh, about your work and about Jack Kirby. Obviously, I, I remember conversations with you uh, at the uh, early versions of Ground Zero. Uh, uh, I remember a time when Marguerite was was pregnant and we were sitting amongst a giant pile of comics talking about Jack Kirby back in the day. Uh, um, In any event, uh, what else are you doing here uh, at SBX? Is just gonna to sell this or well, no? I mean, I had to out? walk around and look at stuff. Okay, and, that's what that's what I'm trying to find. You walk Cream around, you look at stuff. All right, you got a coffee. There's a lot of coffee. There's a lot of talent. Oh, thanks for the coffee. Yes, there's a lot of talent. I do. This, this is a very vital scene. This it's this a great is, scene. This is you know these kids are actually doing it because they love it. Yeah, you know. Yeah, and and the work is like absolutely driven by. Pure aesthetics, I but, think, as yeah, opposed to, make to great like, just commerce, yeah. as a lot of the comics that are yeah. directed to be movies yeah. or whatever the hell right. is that they want to do with them. Right. Well, this look, is I, really for love. As that. always, I, I, um, I strive to get you on the record, uh, raw and uncut. So you just saw it in <laughs> James James Romberger, uncut, unbowed. So look, man, thanks so much for being on More to Come again. Thank you. Uh, don't worry, you'll be on again. Bye for real. Bye, one. right. Yes, <laughs> ask not. 
the price. Available yeah, uh, from Uncivilized Books by James Romberger. There we go. All right. Thank you, Kevin. Let's get this party started. Welcome, more to come, listeners, to another segment of Stargazing. And that means I get to sit around and talk about really wonderful graphic novels just reviewed by PW with Meg Linky, PW's graphic novels review editor. Hey, Meg, how you doing? Hello, comics fans. I'm doing well. I'm really delighted to talk about these two books today. Well, before so, we get started, though, just very quickly, just mm. remind our listeners what we mean by stargazing. So Publishers Weekly reviews comics in every issue of the print magazine, and they also go online. And reviews are critical pieces that evaluate a book, and very occasionally, for a special book, we give it a star designation. And that means a few things. It means it's a book that we expect our audience, which is booksellers, librarians, as well as the general reading public, rights folks, that we think they need to know about. Um, sometimes it's a discovery. Sometimes it's a well-known author. And in all cases, it needs to be exceptionally well done and hopefully notable in some way. And so, that can be broadly defined. But Cool. All right. So what are we talking about this week? So we have two books we're going to talk about. The first is uh, in the category of a discovery. It's a debut by Travis Dandro. The book mm -hmm. is titled King of King Court. It just came out in August. So Calvin and I are talking here in the first week of September um, from Drawn and Quarterly. Mm -hmm. It's mammoth. It's 464 pages, <laughs> uh, many of which are wordless, full-page illustrated drawings. Um, and it's... It, it, this book blew me away. I loved it. I mm. loved this book. And so did the reviewer. I should clarify um, for listeners, I'm the review's editor. I don't write the reviews. But okay. when a book is recommended for a star by one of our review, reviewers who are anonymous, it's, it's a sanctified yes, part of Publishers way, Weekly, yes. um, they come to me and I think on it and I get close to the book and I read it and then I decide whether or not we agree that it's a star review. And this one I loved. I mean, I really stayed up lately reading it. Uh, it takes place in the 80s, and then it moves into the longer space of Travis Dandro's life, but it starts with him as a small boy. And, and what I think captured me so much about it is how accurately he um, puts the reader in the vision, like, the, like in the perspective of a young child trying to understand the world around him and his dysfunctional family. Um, and the kind of the way that a child's attention flips around from small details to large dramatic happenings in their in their family and space in the space around them. So there's a way in which like a, a bird landing on the windowsill has equal weight to uh, his his father, his biological father, who's a drug addict, shooting up next to him. Yeah. And you see the way that the child's view um, captures both of these as memory. Yeah, yeah. He, he's got a great knack for capturing the moment, uh, mm -hmm. powerful emotional moments, uh, visually, um, capturing states of mind, um, and methodically outlining, um, as you were putting it, his, his development in a really abusive, well, in a, a sporadically abusive household. Right. Um, and, and until his awareness grows to a point of maturity when he can see clearly, um, uh, the dysfunctionality of, of his, his mother and his father and his, his role in it. Right. So it, it's a, this portrait of 
his family where he in the beginning has this figure in his life who he doesn't know is his biological father. Yeah. He has a stepfather and his mother later, his mother and stepfather break up and his biological father and his mother start dating again. And this on and off again presence of his father, who's an unreliable character who he both loves very dearly, who clearly loves him, but is unable to be a stable parenting figure because of his, um, drug addiction you know, is this literally larger than life character in the book. Like he's drawn like a big eighties macho figure. He kind of looks like the Terminator. Um, and that he's muscle bound. He's a muscle bound figure with these Ray bands. And that also plays in, he's literally a dangerous. Yeah. He's, he's a dangerous figure. There's no doubt about it. And it just seems, um, he is socially malformed in some way. He really mm -hmm. seems to have, and inability to function, not only not function within his family, but within any sort of, you know, structured, you know, social setting, even as, even having a job, as we find out. Right. But there's a way that despite all of that, and despite of the, the pain that, you know, Dandro as a teenager comes to understand that his family's dysfunction caused for him, he has this incredible authorial empathy with every character, you know, including the the dangerous figure of Dave, you know, who, who created so much trauma in his real life. And that's, that's a feat, you know, I think, um, the, the reviewer. It certainly is when yeah. you're in a family situation, uh, that's fraught with victimization as his was. Um, I'll just quote from the review, which I love to do because partly this is about also celebrating the ways the reviewers appreciated the work. Um, they described it as punctuated with close-ups of the details that fill a small boy's life. Dandro's debut memoir is an extended poetic gaze on intergenerational helplessness and the violence it begets. You know, I, I, I also thought this book was really powerful. Um, I uh, At one point, I was a little... Um, uh, dissatisfied. I thought there wasn't enough context for his father's abuse. Mm. Uh, I, I, I've changed my mind since rereading it. I think that there, uh, there is a peak at in his past that may be a part of this. I don't want to spoil it. Mm. Uh, it, I think the weight of his, uh, behavior puts a lot of pressure on this, um, this wound, but I do think that that is, um, uh, I think it's a useful fact, uh, that's incorporated into the father's, uh, really, uh, unfortunate, uh, relationships with the rest of his family. I think that's something I, we should say because we want people to pick up this book and not approach it thinking <laughs> yes. this is going to be like only heavy. Is it? There's just something very light about a lot of it too. Like it's, I mean, it's suffused really with good. this. Yeah, the cartooning is amazing. Yeah, uh, his drawing style is is you know very spare uh, mm. and very raw, but it really does the job. But it's also like very like it's very much filling the page. I mean, you mm -hmm. spare in that they're um, like the figures don't have pupils. You know, like it's that kind of yeah. It's a cartoon. They're drawn with right, style. but but he shades everything completely. Yeah. So it's like you have this kind of sense of like the obsessiveness of remembering. I mean, there's like a real tactile experience reading it, where you get this sense of being a child and like coloring in the lines, just the way that everything is shaded in black and white. Um, and there's a lot of wordless, like poignant sequences, page after page. So even though it's over 400 pages, like there's just sections that will kind of fly by, or you could stop in them and read each page very slowly, looking at the way he's framing, you know, like I said, a bird in the windowsill or the, or the figure of his father in the window.
Yeah. So, I loved it. Yeah. Okay. Nice job, Travis Sandro. <laughs> you know, it's 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 definitely um, just an emotionally wrenching book, but really his his ability to capture uh, you know these moments and and his own growth through them it, it really is uh, makes it a really engaging work. It's a great peak of the 80s, too, I should just say. Like, you know, there's this, this bit about, um, he hears about the kidnapping of Adam Walsh. There's a sense of, like, the anxiety of the time penetrating into his world and the ways that interacts with the real, the real dangers around him and his family. So yeah. I'll All just right. plug that, too. All right. All right. So, the next star. No surprise, <laughs> Rusty Brown by Chris Ware has wow. received a star well. review in Publishers Weekly. Um, despite the perhaps foregone conclusion of that, Oh, it's such a good book. I mean, it's My really God. extraordinary, yeah. I mean, uh, what can you say about Chris Ware? Um, his combination of creating just an emotionally wrenching uh, uh, narrative and dazzling you with formal invention uh, mm-hmm. um, in his own distinctive visual syntax, um, it, it never fails to impress and disengage me. I love what he does. Uh, yeah. I will also say... Spoiler, this is only part one. When I picked this yes. up as a galley, you know, <laughs> a little, there's a little backstory. You know, we get this and the marketing copy that came with it is just completely like aloof. I, I don't know. Chris probably wrote it. I mean, he probably dictates exactly what they're allowed to put. <laughs> that could be the case. <laughs> I'm pretty confident on the marketing copy. So it's just like, impenetrable somewhat this marketing copy and also we try not to read the marketing copy before we read a review I and mean, the reviewers are explicitly instructed not to in fact i do you know from my perspective and sometimes just to like see what they're talking about what, they, what, they, what the publicist's expectation is but you know we're not trying to study the marketing copy so we don't inadvertently repeat marketing copy in our yeah. assessment right so I didn't notice. I didn't understand it was part one. <laughs> so I'm reading along <laughs> and suddenly it stops and I was just like, what? I got completely confused. They don't really emphasize it much. You know, I sort of come, came to realize it because I also ended up uh, interviewing Chris uh, Ware at the Book Expo on stage uh, uh, and you know, had read the novel as early on. But yeah, it, it, they they let you know, but they don't make it a big deal. So yeah, I kind of at one point had to like, wow, there's more of this to come. It works as a book. Yeah, it, it does. It, as a single it book. It absolutely works as yeah. a single book. And so I hope people will approach it that way and not feel like it's not yeah. an unfinished. I mean, it's only in the unfinished as much as any life is unfinished, right? I mean, this is the <laughs> well, big yeah. questions of Rusty Brown and his the universe that uh, Ware is getting into as he has in many other books in terms of what's the meaning of a life. You know, how do we... Um, how do we understand someone sits through their possessions, their objects, their passions, their actions? Um, but this book surprised me because I had been familiar with his serialized work, which often that I've seen in the past has been about Rusty Brown and Chalky White. And as they get older, and in fact, this doesn't get into their older sections for uh, Chalky White, at least it does with um, Rusty, but there's oh, and some of the other characters, of course. Yeah, some of the other characters. Sorry, this is getting a little. It's good. I don't want to be too many spoilers. Maybe you, can you give you, maybe yeah, you give exactly. a little overview very quickly, if Thank you can. Thank you. <laughs> <edit around> this. <laughs> um, the book looks at a set of lives revolving around the, these these kids and the faculty at a um, parochial school in the 1970s in Omaha, Nebraska. Um, so the focal characters are Chalky White and um, Rusty Brown. And Rusty Brown is this, like, completely bullied 
superhero loving little kid who just is like despised by his classmates and then sort of embarrasses his father. Um, and Chucky is ready to be his friend despite all of that. Um, and Chucky's older sister, Alice, um, he and Chucky both, she, he and Alice both start the school at the same time. So this is the way that they kind of are the catalyst for looking at all of these different lives. But then in the book, um, you also see the lives of the leader of the kids who bully, um, yeah, the cruel stoner kid, right, uh, Jordan, Jordan Lent, Lent. who's a total stoner, but also mm-hmm. just a completely toxic person and yet never kind of recognizes that. And you get the complete birth to death story. Of yes, Jordan. which is another major kind of feature of this book, this incredible yeah. arc of his life as depicted in the book. Right. Um, and then you get into Rusty Brown's dad's life um, and his father, Woody, Woody Brown, mm-hmm. <laughs> is... Um, yeah. Not a only, remote, a emotionally remote father. <laughs> right. Not only is his own life in terms of his, um, he has a romance that ends and he's heartbroken before he meets Rusty's mother. You delve into the world of the sci-fi story that he wrote that he published that was mm-hmm. kind of his last, like, real creative ha- highlight of his life. Um, and you enter the world of the story. You, like, you yeah. read the story there's these these ways that he just gets into each little piece like gem like piece of the store of um these folks lives and opens it up um there's a character Joanne who is the teacher and she that's one of the most beautiful pieces in the book and i feel I like agree. she's spoken about often as much i i agree i mean she's a black Grand- character in this book and in some ways uh the her story um you know i described the book as heartbreaking and heartrending mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And um, her story is it just really is a it's kind of a powerful. She provides a powerful ending to the story. I'm just going to leave it at that because I don't want to give too much away. She's one of the only characters also who persists through the whole book because she mm-hmm. touches every single character's lives and they all intersect. But she's the teacher for every student yeah. whose lives are un- opened up in the book. And also she is a, a colleague of Woody, um, Rusty's, Rusty's father. And you see through Woody, like his racism and the racism of the school. So she's, she's a teacher at a predominantly white school. She's a black teacher. And you see the ways that she like essentially perseveres in that environment um, and the, and her love and affection for the profession of education, which is this yeah. beautiful piece of it. But then just the depth of character for that figure. Um, and like you said, there's a really, there's a, there's a surprise ending with her own life story that we don't want to reveal, but, um, but it's just, really powerful. And it's really, I mean, it, 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 I mean, it's a story of pain somewhat resolved and, mm-hmm. and, um, uh, you know, uh, whereas books can be fulfilling, but they can be be tough. I mean, he really does kind of give you the sprawling mess of a life, um, and that can be both, you know, enriching and and, hard, and incredibly tragic. We should not, you know, skip over his art style, which is um, oh, can't yeah <laughs> <this> <laughs> telescoping geometric. Um, work, this pointillism for Woody's eyes glass, you know, eyesight sounds mm-hmm. glasses. Like when the characters take their glasses off, he changes the, um, he changes what the reader sees along with what the character sees. The way that Joanne's face changes subtly through the decades and you see, you can kind of place where a character is in the book based on what, where she is in her life and because she's a teacher at the school for so many decades. Mm-hmm. Um, it's, he's really, Obviously, it's sweet generous. Like he's one of the most 
well recognized at this point um, for thinking artists in this space. But this book is also, I think, one of his best. Um, there's these beautiful resonant echoes. You see repeated um, moments, like there's two different characters who decades apart place a flower in a bowl of water. Mm-hmm. The key moments. Um, he's a total virtuoso. It's really amazing. And his ability to balance and, and actually a really gorgeously uh, rendered style uh, with layered expressions um, mm-hmm. and, and deeply colored um, and models. Uh, and this, these idio, idio, idiograms, diagrammatic almost mm-hmm. icons. Uh, I mean, and, and of course, the, his page layout, his syntax, as I mentioned right. earlier, how he delivers the narrative. Nobody quite does it uh, like him. A page in a Rust in a Chris Ware graphic novel is almost, I mean, would almost be four or five pages in anybody else's book because there's multiple parallel lines of narrative that are sort of commenting on each other all at once. Yeah, every page is a puzzle and a kind of game to read, and it's really satisfying. And yet the narrative completely pulls you around. I don't find it, um, Yeah, it's challenging in a, in a engrossing way but it's not um difficult or it's not a push to read through it at all no, it's really... it true he manages to be a demanding adventurous uh formalist mm-hmm. uh while telling a, a a perfectly accessible um and emotion-packed story uh he does he he manages to do it both the jordan lint bit was just it gut-wrenching i mean he yeah. he basically is able with this incredible empathy to tell the life of somebody who's terrible you know, <laughs> yes, he's a, he's a terrible like, yeah. person yeah and and yet while you read it you sympathize with him yeah. because you're so close to the perspective um including these like these ways that his memory like you're so close to the character's memory that you see that his memory is unreliable only with him you only kind of realize it at the same time he does in his older age because you've been so in, intimately connected to it um his perspective through through where's art yeah. Chris makes himself also a character in the book in a way that he completely like yes that you would never sends himself and, up and yeah. it's quite funny yes um, in any event uh, if I may just give a quick plug uh, at publishersweekly.com slash comics uh, we actually have our, our open book uh, columnist uh, Louisa Ermolino actually did a deep dive into the publication uh, of Rusty Brown talking with both Nicola Raji, his, his agent, and Chip Kidd, his editor, as well as Chip Kidd. Uh, and then she also uh, did a really detailed sort of email uh, Q&A with Chris uh, mm. that, I, that, um, that she used part of it in her column, but she had so much material in Chris's direct voice. That we talked about it, and I used it and talked with Chris, and I turned that into a Q and A. So, oh, fantastic! So we've got two pieces um, on the uh, uh, PW Comics World site at publisherswiki.com/slash/comics. So check it out, and you can hear a little bit about the making of the book, and quite a bit about uh, from directly from Chris Ware about uh, how he works and process, what he was thinking about when he wrote the book, and what his perspective is on the characters and what he was trying to do. So. There and we go. didn't say already, this is coming from Pantheon, yes. and yes. it's out right now in yes. September, so get it while you can. So, yes. <laughs> uh, so, uh, two wonderful books, uh, stars in the PW Ferment. Uh, so, thanks once again, Meg. Okay, we'll talk to you all soon. All right, bye-bye.